Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. How can we make sense of the biblical deluge that soaked Auckland, Northland and the Coromandel in late January? And by the time this is being recorded, is about to do it again. If only there was an articulate, slow-talking climate scientist who could explain what the hell just happened. Oh wait, I just spoke with Kevin Trenbath, a distinguished scholar at the National Centre of Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, and an honorary academic in the Department of Physics at Auckland University. Kevin is a Kiwi who left New Zealand to obtain his doctorate in meteorology in 1972 from MIT. He's continued with his climate research and over a long and distinguished career, including being a lead author on the IPCC. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on the show. You're most welcome. So, Kevin, we have experienced La Nina weather patterns before. We know they bring warm, wet rains to the northeast of New Zealand. But this storm last week was just so much more profound. It was it was much more uh, intense than what we've experienced. Can you give us a sense of the scale of the difference between what, what you might call a normal event and this one? Well, firstly, you're right. We're in a La Nina, but we're also in the third year of a La Nina. And in an La Nina, there is cold sea surface temperatures, actually from about 160 east, but certainly from the Dateline all the way to the Americas. And it's quite a broad, extensive region of a relatively cool sea surface temperatures, especially for that region. And so that means all of the weather in that region tends to stay away from there. And instead, there's a lot of activity to the north of Australia and in the Indonesian region. And over time, the things that build up in association with that are very high sea surface temperatures in the North Pacific and also in the South Pacific, and especially in the Tasman Sea and around New Zealand, and also in the Coral Sea. And as you mentioned, there's a tendency for anticyclones to exist just to the east of New Zealand. So we get a lot of subtropical storms that come down in this direction during the La Nina phase. But now in this third year, they're coming down over very high sea surface temperatures, sea surface temperatures that are a couple of degrees Celsius above normal. In addition, in this last event, the air that was flowing into this region was coming right from the tropics. It wasn't coming from the subtropics at all, and, and it was coming a long way. You could see the trajectory of it. It had extremely high water content, atmospheric water vapor content as a result of this, and the pattern was remarkably persistent. And so it was just streaming down from the north all the way through Northland and the Auckland region. And there were, you know, embedded thunderstorms and, and stronger periods of, of rain attached to that. But overall, the moisture in the atmosphere is probably around uh, five to, I would say even 25%, somewhere in that neighborhood. And in general, locally, it's more like um, 5 to 15%. But the fact that all of this 
moisture was being carried down from the tropics means that there's just so much more moisture in the atmosphere, more than nearly double what we normally encounter around the Auckland area. And the result was record-breaking rains. Uh, the atmospheric systems concentrate the water vapor and dump it down. And the topography of Northland, uh, the Coromandel Peninsula, and around here uh, acts as a magnet in a way. It, it uh, helps to concentrate it because it gives the airflow a little bit of extra lift as it comes on shore. And this because there's so much water vapor in the atmosphere, the atmosphere as a whole is quite unstable is another way to think about it. Hmm. And so you give it a little boost and suddenly it, it takes off and and we end up getting heavy rains. And they really persisted for a long time. Uh, the best part of the, the whole day of the 27th, but certainly the focus was about a six-hour period in particular mm. where there were really heavy rains and there were very heavy rains right where i am here uh you know i received about uh, 280 millimeters hmm? which is where which is where where i'm near uh browns bay myrangi bay mm -hmm. there's a station at myrangi bay which recorded uh, 254 millimeters on the 27th so that's 10 inches exactly of rain uh, and uh, and so th that's actually slightly more than they got in Auckland Central in, in Albert Park mm. at that time. And then, uh, what, two days ago or, uh, and, or over the night of two days ago, we got another uh, three inches of rain, about 75 millimeters of rain. Uh, it, it was much more localized along the coast in that particular case, though. It didn't extend as far inland to the Wairau Valley, for instance. And uh, and so uh, this area that I'm in is quite uh, hilly, rolling hills, and most of the rain runs off. Mm. Uh, as long as the drainage systems are not blocked, uh, and most of them weren't, then uh, the the water just runs off and and there's no great catastrophes associated with it. But there has been some erosion, and uh, there's a very nice trail that I walk my usually walk my dog on, and uh, this that's been eroded away, and a big chunk of it has fallen down. So uh, mm. uh, I think that will have to be restored. But uh, maybe we're a little bit more resilient right where I am to the heavy rains, but there are some areas like the Wairau Valley, which used to be a swamp, that uh, are very vulnerable to this kind of thing. <clears throat> I read that Auckland Airport recorded effectively a month's worth of rain in one hour on yes. Friday. Yes, uh, that that was happening in many places. On the Met Service map, it shows the trajectory of this aquatic plume or atmospheric river almost making a beeline for New Zealand almost like it was following a riverbed directly at us uh, is is that the hand of God you know kind of punishing us <laughs> is there some sort of channel that it would follow to make such a beeline I mean, it was just the setup of the weather systems overall but you're right it's unusual because it's not that uncommon for us to get stuff out of the subtropics, but to get it all the way from the tropics continuously in a, in this huge 
northerly uh, or north to south, should I say, uh, flow, I, I I haven't seen anything quite like that before. Mm. So it, it's quite unusual in that regard, but it does indeed relate in part to the La Nina situation. You and others like you, James Renwick, uh, formerly Niwa, uh, have fingered climate change as a contributor to this storm. Why is that? What's the connection? So I was involved in a new assessment of the oceans that was published um, very early in the year, about the 10th of January. Um, we've done this now for several years, and it, it looks at the, uh, the sea surface temperatures and the upper ocean heat content down to 2,000 meters. And we can actually assess this now quite well using all of these new observations in the ocean from what are called Argo floats. So these are uh, automatic uh, little robots, if you like to think of them that mm. way, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. uh, sample the top 2,000 meters of the ocean and they record temperature and salinity. And when they get to the surface, as they pop up every 10 days or so, that information is telemetered back to ground-based stations, and we can analyze that. And so this was this has been done for 2022, and 2022 is the warmest year on record for the ocean heat content. Now, it turns out uh, with climate change, there is a buildup of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and that extra heat moves around in the atmosphere and does various things associated with weather systems, but over 90% of it ends up in the ocean. Uh, about half of the rest goes into melting ice, Greenland, uh, glaciers, uh, Antarctica, and so on. And uh, most of the other half uh, penetrates into land and actually warms the land up ultimately. Mm. And, and a little bit, about 0.46% of it, uh, goes into the atmosphere. So so the atmosphere doesn't have a lot of heat capacity in that regard. And so the oceans are the warmest on record that they've ever been. And it's not completely uniform. The Atlantic has warmed up uh, substantially, and also the Southern Oceans have warmed up substantially. But there's a strong La Nina signature attached to this this year. So the North Pacific, the South Pacific, and the uh, the Southwest Pacific, all of the Tasman Sea and the uh, Coral Sea and around New Zealand shows up as uh, uh, we might call it a hot spot uh, uh, in some in on some places. Uh, it's called a marine heat wave. Uh, this this terminology, uh, they're, they're trying to define that as certain space and time scales, but I think it would certainly qualify. Hmm. But it does tend to move around a bit with the weather systems, because as you get a big weather system, it actually takes heat out of the ocean and puts it into the atmosphere. It uh, invigorates the weather systems. Uh, the rain, as it condenses, re releases that heat to, to do that, makes the weather systems more intense, and then we get heavier rains out of it. So this is part of the consequences, but uh, eventually that heat ends up going back into the oceans, ultimately. And, and that so, heat is, is carried by water vapor, effectively. The water vapor is the connection in this case, primarily, mm. yes. Mm. I mean, the air itself is a bit warmer. And uh, if the atmosphere is warmer by uh, one degree Celsius, it can hold 7% more moisture. And around New Zealand, there, the sea temperatures have been about three degrees Celsius above 
above the previous normal. And so, you know, that's that gives us, you know, 20 percent more moisture potentially in the atmosphere. But then you need a weather system to come along and it gathers all mm-hmm. of that moisture together and concentrates it and dumps it down in the form of rainfall. So so that's the connection with the global warming. It's it's really the the global oceans being so hot. Hmm. That uh, ratio that you just talked about of a 1% rise average global temperatures results in a 7% increase in water vapor temperature. Is that Can I, can I can correct you there? It's a one degree Celsius Excuse me, rise, excuse me, one degree. Giving yep. a 7%. And the key thing about that is it's nonlinear. Uh it's it's a percent. It's not a certain amount. Mm-hmm. It's it's a percent. So as you get even warmer and warmer still, the amount that, of water vapor that you're adding is even greater and greater. Um, so uh, at cold temperatures, you're not adding that much water vapor. But at high temperatures, the amount of water vapor that's getting added is quite substantial. Hmm. The logical extension of this is if we are tra- projecting to move to a 1.5 degree warmer world, by 2100, hopefully not further than two degrees, but that 7% doesn't become 14%. It becomes something else, 20%, 40%. Well, looking around, you know, if we have two degrees, say, then as a whole, the water holding capacity of the atmosphere goes up by uh, 14%. The trouble is 14% in the tropics is a whole lot more than 14% in the subtropics. And that's a lot more than 14% in the extra tropics in the New Zealand region. And so as the weather systems move this stuff around, suddenly instead of 14% in the New Zealand region, you've got 20 or, or 30%. And there's been a number of studies that have been done of uh, hurricanes and of floods, and I've been in some other flood events uh, that show that uh, often the effect is of, of global climate change is about 30%, and certainly it can easily be 20%. Uh, and so the atmospheric dynamics, in other words, are concentrating that amount and increasing it. We seem to be very slow learners as a species. Maybe that's a good thing in some respects. But it takes a kind of visceral experience like this for mainstream, ordinary people, institutions, businesses, government people to believe. Is that your experience? I mean, I'm, uh, you've not been shy in articulating this message over the last few decades along with other scientists. So, well, as you mentioned, uh, decades. I have a recording of myself on uh, the Lara News Hour, which is the public broadcasting system. Brian Lara. Yeah, and uh, the the nice thing about that is that they actually spend a bit of time on things, and so this recording is actually nine minutes long, and it was in 1997. And I was talking about increases in extremes and uh, a lot of the things that we're still talking about about that point. Now, a lot of the documentation of this in the scientific literature really occurred uh, very late in the 20th century and the early 21st century. But scientists have certainly been talking about it for 20 years and uh, 25 years. And 
uh, and it's taken time. Uh, you know, the oceans are, are warming up, and I would say it's really only in the last maybe five years or so that it's gotten to the point where it's really standing out all the time so that weather events are more extreme. And we've seen this in the news media, in the public recognition, that now they're drawing this connection between climate change and the greater increases in extremes. And of course, these increases in extremes are heat waves. Uh, so the temperatures on land, especially in continental regions, uh, the associated droughts, things dry out quicker. Mm. Uh, there are then increases in wildfires uh, if the conditions are not you know, raining. And uh, and then in other places where it is raining, we we get heavier rainfalls and the potential for flooding. And so it gets manifested in different ways. And some people are certainly quite confused. How can it be both drier and hotter and at the same time wetter? And, you know, often wet goes with you know, cooler conditions as it's been in Auckland. It's been cloudy and where's summer been? I don't know. <laughs> and and so it, it's hard for the general public to figure this out. But I think they're beginning to. Uh, and messages like the one we're doing right now is part of that uh, understanding. Where do you sit on the frustration scale? Uh, if, if 10 is exasperated and pulling your hair out, you 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 actually have a fantastic head of hair, so obviously there's still some left to pull. But um, you know, where do you sit on that scale? And and personally, you know, how do you continue the good fight? Well, I was employed at the National Center for Atmospheric Research for 36 years, and uh, and I'm still affiliated with them, and I still have access to all of the computers and so on there. Uh, so. Uh, so I have a uh, an emeritus position. Uh, I just don't get paid anymore. <laughs> uh, but um, the 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 frustration became more apparent to me when I was cleaning up my office and packing stuff up and getting ready to ship stuff down to New Zealand. And I found a whole lot of these videotapes and um, old VHS tapes and various recordings of things that I'd done in the past. And I, I actually became a bit disgusted that we hadn't made a whole lot more progress, given that the message has been around for you know 25 years. Hmm. And uh, I was very involved in the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, in the in to some extent in the first one, but mainly the second one, the third one, and the fourth one, and a little bit as a review editor on the fifth one, and so I've been quite involved in that. I've been also very involved in the World Climate Research Program in trying to help uh, document just what is going on and why it's going on, and and the roles of things like the El Nino phenomenon. And and so I've had a lot of fun doing science along the way, I have to say, and that's certainly been my main mission. But I've mm -hmm. also uh, spent quite a bit of time talking to people, uh, giving talks, giving news media interviews of various kinds. And uh, But it wasn't until I was cleaning up my office that I suddenly realized that, mm -hmm. oh, 
gee, I really ought to be frustrated. I've got every right to be frustrated <laughs> at how little progress has been made. Well, I'm glad that the frustration has not stopped you from continuing your work. Now, one of your frustrations happened in 2009. You got tangled up in this ridiculous uh, campaign, smear campaign that eventually got called Climate Gate, where uh, a hack un uh, unveiled 2,000 or so emails of exchanges between scientists and was used as a the any of the doubt or uncertainty or discussion points were used by uh, climate uh, deniers and activists to try and discredit you and and your colleagues H has that you know i guess there's two questions you know tell us about what that experience was like and and has it continued or is it blown over now well in 2007 i was uh, the coordinating lead author with phil jones of the main chapter of the IPCC report dealing with observations. That was the biggest report, uh, biggest chapter in the whole report, and it dealt with everything that's going on. And uh, Phil Jones uh, was at the, uh, the Climate Research Unit in at East Anglia, and that's where the computer was hacked. And so understandably, uh, when that happened, there were, you know, at least 300 of my emails that were involved in in ClimateGate that came out, and it was used by uh, a number of people, uh, deniers of climate change, to try to disrupt the Conference of Parties, the COP process that was mm -hmm. going on in 2009 at Copenhagen, and it was expected that there would have been really good progress at that particular COP, but uh, nothing much happened. And the sort of thing that we were hoping for at that time was what happened eventually in Paris in in December of 2015 at the at the Conference of Parties, the the COP uh, process that occurred there. And so it was very disappointing, and and essentially the deniers uh, were very effective, even though nothing that they really said uh, had any merit. The only thing that did show up in, I think there were at least six major investigations of this, especially of the Climate Research Unit, uh, is that their sharing of data had not been uh, quite as much as it might have been. But, you know, the, scientists you know we we deal with each other if if one scientist says one thing and it's wrong then he very quickly gets corrected <laughs> or she very very quickly gets corrected and so it was uh, quite frustrating and uh, where i was i was involved in all sorts of things um, uh, op-eds in newspapers in uh, radio talkback shows. I was the subject of mm -hmm. of these, and there were protesters at the at the bottom of the hill below uh, the building where I worked. Uh, but it was in January, as it turns out, and the temperatures were about minus uh, fifteen degrees Celsius, and it was so it was very cold, and they didn't last very long, <laughs> which was a, which was a blessing, but. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I handled it about as well as any. Phil Jones basically had a uh, uh, collapsed in a, in a way. Uh, he had a nervous breakdown of sorts and uh, had to really take some time off in order to recover. He's back, fortunately, working again now, but uh, 
uh, it, it really had some major impacts on him. Uh, and certainly he was more affected than I was. But mm. uh, but there were s- several of my emails that got out there and got around. And the incredibly frustrating thing about that is the time that we've lost. As you say, by 2009, we had enough evidence to drive a good cop process. And what have we lost now? Nearly 14 years as a result. And, and the acceleration of... Uh, climate effects and the acceleration of CO2 in the atmosphere has continued uh, kind of unabated. That's correct. And this is the frustrating thing. And it's hard to see where we're going now because the the two COPs uh, since then, the last one in Egypt and the one before that in Glasgow, uh, didn't progress things a great deal. There was a little bit of progress in Glasgow, but the, there was almost no progress at the last one. And of course, it's very, very difficult because you're dealing with almost 200 countries. Uh, it's, it's the UN process insists that you have unanimous agreement. And so everything tends to get watered down. You know, I don't think the COP process is the way in which we will really move forward on this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What will really move us forward is either the uh, G20 or uh, perhaps even more likely the G7, or uh, what I really think needs to happen is for China and the United States to get together because the China is the is the biggest emitter right now, and the U.S. is the biggest e- emitter historically, and if they could get their act together in dealing with this issue, then I think all of the other countries would have to go along. And I think Europe certainly would would go along. Mm. Uh, but uh, with a war between the Ukraine and, and Russia, uh, you know, that's very bad for the environment. And the attention is really all directed elsewhere in Europe and the United States at the moment. Uh, not really dealing with uh, climate change, although there's quite a bit of funding available in the United States and in other places to do certain things. But I mm. don't see it going in the right places at the moment. Uh, too much of it is going toward uh, climate uh, carbon dioxide capture, uh, which is a really fruitless activity because it costs too much and it takes energy to do that. And the gains that you get are very small. And I wrote an article uh, about this, and it's not the way to do things. The way to do things is to cut emissions and to decarbonize the economy. Mm. And, you know, various places we're trying to do that. And so that makes, you know, use of electric cars instead of internal combustion engines uh, more useful. Uh, in New Zealand, there's a lot of more things that we could be doing that we're not doing. And I think some of the focus in New Zealand is actually not in the right direction. I, I think that that could be the subject of an, <laughs> of another podcast interview because um, there's you've touched on so many things there. I'm curious, uh, you had a, you've had a stellar career. Uh, what brought you back to New Zealand from the States? Well, I was born in New Zealand. I, I grew up in New Zealand. I got my uh, undergraduate degree at the University of Canterbury, and I worked for the New Zealand Meteorological Service for several years. But I won a, a New Zealand Research Fellowship, which was a government fellowship, to to go and get a doctorate. And I went to MIT and got my doctorate there, and I married 
uh, a very nice, pretty young girl at that uh, there. So we suddenly had a U.S. connection. And then uh, I was working uh, back in New Zealand for, uh, what, six years and not getting very well rewarded. And at the same time, there had been a huge amount of inflation. So while I was away, the cost of houses had sort of gone up by a factor of four, and I couldn't afford one. And all my colleagues that had stayed in New Zealand, they, there they were with a house. And I, I had three mortgages and couldn't afford it. So I went back to the U.S. and I worked in the U.S. for what, 42 years. I was a professor at the University of Illinois for six to seven years before I went to the National Center for Atmospheric Research. So when I retired there, uh, partly because of the political situation in the U.S., and this refers especially to the Trump administration, mm -hmm. I couldn't stand Trump, still can't. And nor could my daughter. And uh, so I had a daughter who was born in New Zealand. She had a New, Ze New Zealand passport, but she had a husband and two young kids. And she decided because uh, because of all the attitudes towards women and the problems with guns and especially guns in schools that uh, that they would get out of there and come to New Zealand. And so when I retired, it was natural for my wife and I to follow. And uh, that's the reason we're actually in Auckland. Hmm. Uh, otherwise, I would probably have gone back to Christchurch, which is where I grew up. All right. Well, their loss is our gain. I, I'm pleased that you're back. And thank you for contributing to the debate and your ongoing work. Um, but I always like to ask people, uh, what hope? do you have you uh, we and we kind of touched on this before but i i would quite like to hear your grandfather now and uh i actually became a grandfather in january and and it's uh, quite a profound thought isn't it to hold this baby and know that this little boy will be alive and all, all things going well uh, by 2100 you know which is kind of this benchmark that we've set ourselves to work towards and it makes it very visceral doesn't it to hold this child and think this is not some uh, imaginary future this is the future for you that we are envisaging uh, somehow it makes it very visceral I, I i found it very motivating i'd be curious to know what gives you hope Yes. So you're talking very much about value systems, and this relates to what you do about it. And and so uh, if you value the kind of climate for the future generations, which I certainly do and, and you do, then uh, then you think that we ought to be doing a lot more, taking more actions and preparing for climate change. And, and you know, both of those aspects go hand in hand. Uh, so I'll talk a little bit more about that in, in just a second. But there are others who don't have those values. And uh, there are people who are remarkably selfish and everything they do is for themselves and not for the future generations. And so they... They want to exploit the environment now and and do so. And unfortunately, there's far too many of, of those. Um, and so when you come back to the question of what do we do about climate change, then firstly, we need to cut emissions of the greenhouse gases that are causing the problem. So that's number one. But then 
we also need to recognize that climate change is already with us and having effects. And therefore, we need to respond to that. We need to plan for it. And this means uh, assessing vulnerability uh, in, in various ways, where you live, how vulnerable is your house in, to a flood, for instance. Uh, and then uh, assess what the possible impacts could be if some weather event, a flood, uh, a heat wave, uh, comes along and then plan for it, take actions to try to mitigate that in various ways, mm. um, to build resilience uh, and uh, and try to prevent any such flooding uh, from occurring. So this relates to building adequate drainage systems and ensuring that they work and, and things like that. And uh, and so all of this comes under the heading of what is referred to as adaptation. And so we need to adapt to the climate change that's already happening and which is coming in the future. And there's nowhere near enough of that occurring either. Well, it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much. You're most welcome. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. If you like the show, please rate us as it helps others to find us. Ka kiti anon.